We're just at the start of Matthew's account of Jesus. Matthew will tell us of how Jesus faced 40 days of testing in the wilderness. But Matthew's going to show us that Jesus the Son is totally faithful throughout his time of testing. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. And uh, Jonathan, I so appreciate the fact that as we begin to take a look at this account that Matthew writes of of Jesus' life uh, in his story, that we spend a little time taking a look at the faithfulness of Jesus. Why do you think it's important for us to have such a, a clear understanding of his faithfulness? One of the things I think we learn about the gospel stories and the way they're put together in the New Testament is that they are driving toward the cross of Jesus. The gospels are cross-centered books, and all that is told us about Jesus before the cross is in a way leading up to and preparing us to understand what it means for Jesus to die for our sins. And to learn that Jesus is totally faithful to God in every respect teaches us in a profound way that he is going to stand in our place as the innocent one, the righteous one, the perfect sacrifice. And I think that is one of the most profound lessons that Matthew wants to teach us. And I hope we'll see that together. Well, we are going to see that together as you grab your Bible and join us in the book of Matthew. We're in chapter 2 as we continue the message, God's Son Opposed. Here is Jonathan. In achieving our salvation, God the Father is totally sovereign. That's the first lesson that Matthew has for us in our passage this morning. The second one is this. In achieving our salvation, God the Son is totally sufficient. The all-sufficiency of Jesus as the true Son of God is a great and a profound lesson of this passage. And I think in many ways it is the central lesson that Matthew wants to draw out in this passage. But we need to do a little bit of digging and a little bit of work at the text to see and understand that this is what Matthew is driving at here. It won't surprise you if I say that the key to understanding this passage is to figure out what's going on in these three fulfillment statements, these three statements about Jesus fulfilling Old Testament expectations. Verse 15, verse 17, verse 23. They're the kind of backbone and structure of the passage. And if we could summarize what's going on in these three fulfillment statements, I think we would summarize it like this. Jesus is living out the story of the nation of Israel. Jesus, the Son, is personally fulfilling the calling of God for his nation and his people. Let's just have a look at each of these fulfillment statements in turn. You remember what's happened at the start of our passage? The angel of the Lord has told Joseph and the family to escape Herod and go to Egypt. So they go to Egypt and they stay there, verse 14, until the death of Herod. And so, verse 15, was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. It's amazing how two children from the same family can turn out so differently. I wonder if you've observed that. The first child is given great opportunities, lots of love and care, a great education, lots of encouragement, lots of help along the way. But that child, for whatever reason, rebels, 
goes off the rails and gets into a bit of a mess later on in life. It all kind of goes wrong. We've seen it happen. Now, the younger child is given exactly the same. Great opportunities, lots of love and care, a great education, lots of encouragement and help. And that child flourishes, obeys his parents, and grows up to be a model son. Two children, same family, same experience and opportunities, but quite different outcomes. Now, here in this fulfillment text, and as the story progresses, Matthew is wanting to show us that the story of Israel as a nation and the story of Jesus in the gospel are, in a sense, on one level, the story of two sons. Two sons with very similar backgrounds and experiences, two sons of the same father, but who live out the story of sonship in two very different ways. When we see the language of sonship in Scripture, in the Bible, when we see someone being called Son of God, we immediately think of Jesus, and that's, of course, right that we should do that. But it's important for us just to register the fact that the first person or the first group to be identified as God's Son in the Bible is actually the nation of Israel. God makes it very clear early on in the Bible story that he views the nation of Israel as his precious child, even as his son. I think I'm right in saying that the first reference in Scripture to someone as a son of God comes in Exodus chapter 4, in a famous section where God is instructing Moses as to what he should say to Pharaoh in Egypt at the time of the Exodus. You remember that the people of Israel had gone into Egypt in a time of famine to seek relief and shelter and so on. And now, centuries on, they've been enslaved by the Egyptians and they need a rescue. God hasn't forgotten them. He sent Moses now to be their rescuer. And in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 22, he tells Moses to say this to Pharaoh. This is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. And of course, to cut a long story short, God did secure the release of his son from slavery in Egypt. He did call him out of Egypt. But the nation of Israel failed to worship God in faithfulness as they should have. Very quickly, in just a few chapters, this precious child of God, this son of God, was worshiping a golden calf an idol in the wilderness. They were called out to worship him, but soon turned to idols. That story of the Exodus and the language of sonship as applied to the nation is picked up again later in the Old Testament story, in the book of Hosea in chapter 11. And here we come to the text that Matthew actually quotes. Here, many centuries later, the Lord recalls his great rescue of his nation from slavery in Egypt, and he laments how they've been unfaithful to him. Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1. Let me read it. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But the more I called Israel, the further they went from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. But they did not realize that it was I who healed them. I lifted the yoke from their neck and bent down to feed them. 
In a sense, those verses from Hosea chapter 1 sum up the history of Israel. God treated Israel as his child, as his precious son, with tenderness and compassion. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love, the Lord says. But the more the Lord poured his love on Israel, the further they seemed to go from him. Throughout the Old Testament, God's great promise to Israel was that if they would be faithful to him, they would enjoy his blessing and they would enjoy his security, even his salvation. But if they rebelled, they would face his judgment. And time and time again, the sad history of Israel is that they did turn in rebellion and unfaithfulness. Many years after this great rescue from Egypt, Israel would be sent into exile in Babylon as a judgment for sin. The temple would be destroyed, Jerusalem would be sacked, and the nation would never again regain its sovereignty. But even after that period of great judgment, the nation would still struggle to learn faithfulness and true repentance. On one level, the story of the Old Testament is a story of much disappointment. God longed to bless his people. He longed for them to be a showcase to the world of what it meant to know the Lord and be loved by the Lord and be the Lord's son and his child. If they would but be faithful to the Lord's calling to be his holy people, they would enjoy fullness of life and security and blessing in a land that God had set apart for them. But again and again, there was sin and there was rebellion. There was a, a failure to live up to the calling of true sonship. Now, that's the sad story that the Lord is reflecting on here in Hosea chapter 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. When in verse 15 of Matthew chapter 2, Matthew quotes these words from Hosea and says that they are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus, in his story, in his journey to Egypt, in his return to Israel, in making that crucial link, which is as plain as day in the text, what is Matthew doing? He is saying to us, he is teaching us that the Lord Jesus, God's true son, has stepped into Israel's story and into Israel's calling and is now living it out personally himself. Jesus himself has entered the world to be God's true son, following the path of sonship that God has set out for his child. But as Matthew will show us, this time Jesus will follow that path in faithfulness and he will fulfill the calling of sonship in all integrity. This is Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths, and we have to pause the message right here. But stay tuned. We'll get back to the message in just a moment. If you ever miss a program or you want to go back and listen to a broadcast again, you can always do that by coming to our website. It's EncounterTheTruth.org. Also a great place to go if you just want to find out more about this ministry and about Jonathan. Again, our website address, EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, let's get back to the message. Once again, we're in the book of Matthew, chapter 2. Here is Jonathan. Matthew is, if you like, telling the story of two sons, two sons of the same father with the same great privileges, but one who rebels and one who is faithful. The next two fulfillment statements make the same point. When Herod seeks to destroy the baby by murdering the male children of Bethlehem, 
We're told in verse 17 that what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now, we don't have time this morning to go back and delve into Jeremiah chapter 31 in detail, but that chapter focuses on the time of the exile of the people of Israel to Babylon, a time of disaster for the nation as they experience that judgment of God that I mentioned a few moments ago. And in those words of Jeremiah quoted here in Matthew, Rachel is pictured as mother of the nation, weeping for her children as they go off into captivity in Babylon, mourning because she feels and fears that the nation will now be wiped out and she'll have no more sons. But just as God saved Israel from being destroyed in Egypt, so he saved his true son from, from, well, in exile in Babylon and in Egypt before then, sorry. He's now saved his true son from Herod's destruction in Babylon. Finally, as Jesus is brought to live in Nazareth, now to avoid Herod's son Archelaus, we're told in verse 23 that so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene. Now, there is no single verse from the Old Testament that Matthew is quoting here. And you'll notice that he introduces this quotation slightly differently. He says that this fulfills the words of the prophets in general, rather than the words of a single and specific prophet. And the point that he's making here is one of a more general correspondence with the Old Testament. Nazareth didn't have a great reputation in the time of Jesus. It was known to be a place of kind of low repute, a bit of a backwater, way up north, a good distance from the capital, from Jerusalem. It was a place of little significance, a place you'd rather not live if you could avoid it. I thought I might try and come up with a contemporary example to illustrate the point, but I realized that whatever place I chose as the kind of backwater or insignificant place to illustrate the point, there would almost be certainly be someone here who grew up there or lives there or likes to go there on holiday, and I'd end up in trouble. I remember actually trying that some time ago back in the UK when I was preaching on a text that mentioned Nazareth. You'll know that England is made up of a number of different counties, and if you've spent time in England, you may know that the county of Essex is often the butt of lots of kind of friendly jokes. Uh, in England. Anyway, to try and illustrate the point when I was preaching on that, I suggested that Nazareth in Jesus's time had a reputation a little bit like Essex in England today. And sure enough, someone came up to me at the end of the service and told me that she was from Essex and she wanted me to know what a nice place it was. So I'm, I won't try that one again this morning, but you'll probably get the idea. To say that Jesus was called a Nazarene was to say that he was from a kind of insignificant place. He was seen as a person of little account, a person of low standing in the eyes of the world. As one person asked in John's gospel, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And the expectation was, no, it cannot. In becoming a person of low standing from an area of little account, in becoming a Nazarene, Jesus not only entered into the story of Israel, but he kind of plumbed the depths of that story. Although Israel had been a great kingdom once, and we think of the time of Solomon and the great temple and the queen of Sheba coming to see him and all the rest of it, Israel had been a great kingdom once, but the nation had been brought very low over the course of the centuries. It had lost much of its territory. It had lost its independence. 
It had been bounced from the ownership of one pagan empire to the next, the Persians, and then the Greeks, and now the Romans. And so by the time of Jesus, Judea was nothing more than a rather insignificant and out-of-the-way province within the mighty Roman Empire. And Nazareth itself was kind of the backwater of Israel, itself the backwater of the empire. And being born a Nazarene, Jesus embraced marginalization and lowliness. He lived out the story of Israel's place in the world in his time. And as Matthew hints at, this role had been prophesied for the Messiah in various ways, in various places in the Old Testament. Listen to what Isaiah 53 says about the Messiah. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. He should be called a Nazarene, a nobody from nowhere, the lowest of the low. Matthew wants us to see that Jesus, God's true son, has entered into the story of Israel and is now living through that story of sonship himself, an escape to Egypt for safety, the peril of the exile, and the fear of obliteration, a life of marginalization, in a place of little account in the eyes of the world. We're just at the start of Matthew's account of Jesus. And what Matthew is going to show us throughout the rest of his story is the picture of a perfect life, a faithful life, a thoroughly God-honoring life. In chapter 4, which we're going to come to soon enough, Matthew will tell us of how Jesus faced 40 days of testing in the wilderness. And I wonder if that rings any bells of recognition in our minds. Because, of course, Israel faced 40 years of testing in the wilderness. But Matthew's going to show us that Jesus the Son is totally faithful throughout his time of testing. Matthew wants us to see in the pages of his book that we are encountering God's true Son who lives out that calling of sonship with faithfulness, integrity, and holiness. Where Israel failed, Jesus was faithful. That's the great point that Matthew's going to draw out. And that point, it matters to us a great deal. And it matters for this reason. Jesus, the faithful son, is entirely sufficient to achieve our salvation. Jesus, the faithful son, is entirely sufficient to secure our salvation. We've said before that Matthew has in mind a particularly Jewish readership for his gospel. And in showing us that Jesus fulfills the calling of sonship, that he's entered into the story of the nation and will live out that story and that calling in perfect faithfulness, he's showing us that it is crucial to trust in Jesus. If you want to enjoy God's salvation, if you want to know his blessing, you need to belong to Jesus. That's true for ethnic Israel, and Matthew's heart's desire is that those who read his gospel will believe that and will trust in Jesus. And of course, it's true for all of us, whether we're part of ethnic Israel or not. On the 6th of September, it was announced that the wreck of the HMS Terror had been found at the bottom of Nunavut's Terror Bay. 
HMS Terror was one of the two ships that participated in Sir John Franklin's ill-fated attempt to navigate the Northwest Passage in 1845. Navigating the Northwest Passage had been a great ambition of the Royal Navy for some time, but no one had managed it. It was too hard, too perilous. And no one actually would manage it for another 50 or 60 years. The challenge was simply too great. And Franklin's famously doomed expedition in 1845 led to the loss of two ships and all on board. In some ways, the Bible presents to us the history of Israel as a voyage that went wrong. The nation on its own simply could not complete the journey. But Matthew wants to see that God hasn't given up on them and he hasn't given up on the world. He wants us to see that Jesus has come to complete the journey, to fulfill the calling in faithfulness. Matthew's Jewish readers needed to see the sufficiency of Jesus, the true son, because they needed to know that salvation wasn't going to be found in their national history or in their attempts at obedience. Salvation is going to be found in Jesus and in him alone. It's going to be found in his obedience, in his perfect life. Salvation is in Jesus and in no one else. And you and I here this morning, we need to see the all-sufficiency of Jesus as well. We need to see that Jesus is the great hero of salvation. We need to see it because you and I will never sufficiently be faithful or obedient to merit God's salvation on our own. We'll never obey God perfectly. This side of heaven will only repeat the story of Old Testament Israel. Our hearts are the same after all. Remember how God tells the story in Hosea, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more I called Israel, the further they went from me. That was Israel's heart then. And that's your heart and my heart now, apart from the grace of God. Only Jesus lives out that story perfectly. And our only hope of salvation is to trust in him and rely on him and belong to him. We need to grasp that truth and be immersed in that truth at the start of a new year. I hope that if we're believers, it will be a year of progress and of growth. I hope it'll be a year when we become more like the Lord Jesus, when we grow in godliness and move forward in spiritual disciplines. But there will be failures. For each of us, there will be failures. That's true for me. That's true for you. The battle with sin, it rages on, and we all know that. If you've set resolutions for your own discipleship, resolutions perhaps to address a particular area of sin or to grow in an area of godliness or to develop a particular discipline, I guess you may well have experienced failure already on some level. And you might be feeling like the new year is already a flop. But the bedrock for each of us is that Jesus, he is faithful, even where we are not. Jesus has lived out that story of sonship perfectly. Matthew's going to show us as we go on in the gospel. And he has satisfied the Father's standards perfectly. And what matters ultimately, the thing of great importance, is just that I belong to him, God's true son, his faithful son, his all-pleasing son. He's the great hero of the story. Salvation is in him and through him and him alone. The son is sufficient for our salvation.
Jonathan Griffiths wrapping up our message, God's Son Opposed, part of a larger series called Promise Fulfilled. Well, we're going to continue this series next time, but if you ever miss a broadcast in the series, you can always come and listen online at EncounterTheTruth.org. And while you're there, I want to ask you to consider giving a gift of support because we depend on your generosity to keep Jonathan's teaching on this station. But as you give a gift of any amount this month, we want to say thank you by sending you a book written by Pastor Josh Moody. It's really a great book on the purpose and the meaning of church. And in fact, the big question that Josh is addressing in this book is, why even go to church at all? The name of the book, How Church Can Change Your Life, Answers to the 10 Most Common Questions About Church. And again, we'd love to send you a copy as our way of saying thanks for your support. You can give online by coming to EncounterTheTruth.org or call us at 833-99-TRUTH. That's 833-998-7884 or EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, thanks for listening today. For Jonathan and for our producer, Mark Breda, I'm Steve Hiller, and I hope you'll join us next time.